epilogue of in brief authority by f anstey this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by anna simon epilogue the reappearance of the wibberley stimpsons coupled with the circumstantial explanations they gave of their mysterious absence abroad provided their friends and neighbours with very nearly the proverbial nine days wonder it might have done so even longer but for that fateful beginning of august when with appalling suddenness the blow was dealt which shattered the peace of Europe and convulsed the whole world. Then the fool's paradise in which England had so long luxuriated crumbled beneath her feet and left her face to face with stern realities. Nothing was the same, or ever would be the same, again. Issues, causes, topics, which scarcely a week before had seemed of such vital and engrossing importance, shriveled into insignificance or extinction under the scorching blast of war, and so it followed that Gablehurst entirely forgot its previous curiosity concerning the private affairs of the Wibberley Stimson family, thereby relieving them from a strain on their inventive powers which they had begun to find extremely wearing. The crisis afforded Mr. Stimson a long-desired occasion for taking a spirited part in politics. At the suggestion of his wife, who reasoned that in so conservative a neighbourhood it would be popular to condemn any steps a radical government had taken, he summoned a public meeting to protest against the British ultimatum to Germany, on the ground that England's safety and interests alike depended on her preserving the strictest neutrality under any circumstances whatever. As his sole supporter on the platform was a recently naturalised British subject with a pronounced German accent, the result of his patriotic endeavour was, as he admitted afterwards, a little unfortunate. Mrs. Wibberley Stimson herself was compelled to recognise as she led him home with two black eyes and only one coat-tail, that she had been less correct than usual in estimating the local sentiment, though, of course, she ascribed his treatment entirely to the lack of tact and ability with which he had handled his subject. However, they have long since succeeded in living all that down. Mr. Simpson very soon recognised that his views of the situation had been mistaken, and made haste to publish his conviction of the righteousness of our cause. No one now enlarges with more fervour on the ruin and disgrace that would have overtaken us if we had been induced to stand aside by persons he refers to as those infernal cranks and pacifists. Moreover, he acquired further merit by his generous contribution of two thousand pounds to the Prince of Wales Fund, a contribution which caused a sensation among many who could give a fairly shrewd guess at the income he drew as a partner in the firm of Cramphorn, Stimson and Thistleton. But then they did not know that, shortly before, he had disposed of two exquisitely carved pieces, one diamond and the other ruby, by private contract to an American millionaire, for a sum which would have covered an even more princely donation. He has several more of these curiosities, but is reserving them for times when they are more likely to fetch their proper value. As for his wife and elder daughter, they have already achieved the distinction of sitting on more war committees and talking more at every one of them than any other ladies in Gablehurst. It is unnecessary to say that they have also knitted a prodigious quantity of garments, or at least did until they were requested to abandon their colour schemes for the regulation khaki wool, which perceptibly cooled their enthusiasm. But, after all, the greatest exhibition of self-denial was given by Ruby, who parted with her latest and best-beloved acquisitions, two tree-frogs and an axolotl and sent the proceeds of their sale to the Red Cross Society. 
Clarence had made several applications for such vacant berths as he could hear of in the city, which seemed to combine the advantages of light work and a heavy salary, but somehow the principals he interviewed could not be brought to share his own conviction that he was exactly the person to suit them. He had referred them to his previous employers, but even that had led to no favourable result. The war had not gone on long, however, when it was forcibly borne in upon him that, if there was no particular demand in business circles for his services, they were needed rather urgently just then by his king and country. And so, one evening before dinner, he strolled casually into the drawing-room at Inglegarth and electrified his family by mentioning that he had offered himself that afternoon to a certain cavalry regiment and been pronounced physically fit after examination. His mother was naturally the most deeply affected by the news, though, after the first shock was over, she was sustained by recollecting that she had caught herself secretly envying a neighbour, whom she had never looked upon as a social equal, but whose boy had just obtained a commission in the territorials. "'You might have prepared us for this, Clarence,' she said, as soon as she could speak. "'It's a heavy blow to me, to us all. Still, if you feel it your duty to go, I hope your father and I are not the parents to hold you back. If I'm not on one of the same committees as Lady Harriet,' she added more brightly, "'I really think I must call and let her know. She'd be so interested to hear that you are now a cavalry officer.' "'He might make it a field-marshal, Mater, while you're about it,' he returned. But if you want to be accurate, you'd better describe me as a bally trooper, because that's all I am, or likely to be. "'A trooper!' exclaimed his horrified mother. "'Clarence, you can't mean to tell us you've enlisted as an ordinary common soldier. I couldn't possibly permit you to throw yourself away like that. Nor, I am sure, will your father. Sidney, of course you will insist on Clarence's explaining at once to the Colonel, or whoever accepted him, that he finds we object so strongly to his joining that he is obliged to withdraw his offer. "'Certainly,' said Mr. Stimson. "'Certainly. It's not too late yet, my boy. You've only to say that we can't allow it. You're more badly wanted at home, and they're sure to let you off.' "'Can't quite see myself telling him that, Governor, even if I wanted to be let off, which I don't.' "'After the way you've been brought up and everything,' cried Mrs. Wibberley Stimson, "'to sink to this.' Has it occurred to you that you would have to associate entirely with persons of the very lowest class? You wouldn't say that if you'd seen some of the Johnnies who passed the vet with me, he replied. And, as to classes, all that tosh is done away with now. There's only one class a fellow can't afford to associate with, the slackers who ought to be in khaki and aren't. I couldn't have stuck being in that crowd any longer, and I'm jolly lucky to have got well out of it. All the same, Clarence, lamented his mother. You must see what a terrible come-down it is for you, who not so very long ago were a crown prince. "'I thought we'd agreed to forget all that, Mater,' he said, wincing slightly. "'Anyway, if I don't turn out a better Tommy than I did a prince, they won't have me in the regiment long. But I'm not going to get the push this time, if I can help it.' "'Come, Mater,' he concluded. "'Don't worry any more over what's done and can't be undone. Just try and make the best of it.' But this was beyond Mrs. Wibberley Stimson's philosophy just then. If he'd been leaving his comfortable home with a commission as sub-lieutenant, she might have been able to find some slight consolation in announcing the fact to her friends. Now she would have to make the humiliating admission that he was nothing more than a common trooper, after which she felt she would never be able to hold up her head again. 
As things turned out, these apprehensions proved unfounded, for it seemed that other young Gablehurst men belonging to families in as good a position as her own had enlisted as privates, and, so far from being considered to have brought discredit on their parentage, were regarded with general approval, and the pride with which their mothers spoke of them encouraged Mrs. Wibberley Stimson to be even prouder of Clarence as the only one who had joined a cavalry regiment. When he was undergoing the necessary training with the reserve regiment, and first had to enter the riding school, he was prepared, remembering how suddenly and completely his control of Mergenland horses had left him, for some highly unpleasant experiences. Daphne's pendant had been left in safe custody at Inglegarth, and, even if he had had any idea that it had assisted his horsemanship, which he was far from suspecting, he would not have brought it with him, lest he should lose a thing which Daphne had said he would please her by keeping. Probably, had he brought and been allowed to wear the token, it would not have made any impression whatever on the mind of a British charger, but fortunately no talisman was needed. All the riding in Mergenland, while his horses continued docile, had not been without some good result after all. At least, he found that he had quite as good a seat as any of his fellow recruits, and a very much better one than most of them. And the months of training passed, not unhappily. He made friends, not all of them in his own class. He set himself to learn his job as quickly and thoroughly as he could, and his sergeant-major spoke of him, though not in his presence, as a smart young chap who showed more sense than some he had to do with. He had not been many weeks in the regiment before he got his first stripe, and when he came home on furlough he was able to inform his family that he had just been promoted to be a full-blown corporal. It was a farewell visit, as he was being sent out in a day or two with a draft to his regiment at the front. He had grown broader across the chest, and looked extremely brown and fit, while his family noticed that he no longer ended his remarks with, What? Once or twice he expressed his satisfaction at getting the chance at last of having a go at the Boches, but he said very little about the future, and seemed more interested in hearing about Ruby's new school and Edna's ambulance class. Then he left them, and for months after that they had to endure the long strain of constant anxiety and suspense which few British households have escaped in these dark times. Clarence had always been a poor correspondent, and his letters, though fairly regular, were short and wanting in details. But he said the regiment was doing dismounted work in the trenches, that he was acquiring the habit of sleeping quite soundly under shell-fire, that he had been much cut up by losing some of his best pals, but so far had not been hit himself, though he had had several narrow shaves. He kept pretty fit, but was a bit fed up with trench work, though he didn't see an earthly of riding in a cavalry charge at present. The last letter was dated February. After that came a silence, which was explained by an official letter stating that he was in a field hospital, severely wounded. Inglegarth remained for days in helpless misery, dreading the worst, till they were relieved by the news that he was now in a base hospital and going on well. But it was some weeks before he could be moved to London, and longer still before he was convalescent enough to be taken to his own home, where the joy of seeing him recover so rapidly was checked by the knowledge that he would only leave them the sooner. He was much the same slangy and casual Clarence they had known, though rather subdued, but he had moods of sombre silence at times which none of them dared to interrupt, when his eyes seemed to be looking upon sights they had seen and would fain forget. As to his own doings, he said but little, though he told them something of his experiences 
during his last week at the front, how the regiment had been rushed up in motor-buses from Bleu to Ypres, how they had marched to the reformatory which they had defended for five days under heavy fire, how they had then dug caverns and occupied trenches to the south of the Menin Road, and how the trenches had been mined by the enemy, and five officers killed and sixty-four casualties, of which latter he was one. Before he was pronounced fit for active service again, he heard that he had been recommended for a commission, and given one, in another cavalry regiment, which had very nearly the same prestige and traditions as his own, though he would have been the last to admit it till then. Thus was Mrs. Wibberley Stimson's dearest desire at last attained. She could now inform her friends and acquaintances that her boy was actually a subaltern, while, even in conversation with strangers, it was always possible to lead up to the fact by enlarging on the heavy cost of a cavalry officer's kit. And yet, in fairness to her, it may be said that, with all her striving after social distinction, if she had been required to choose between her son returning to the front with a commission and keeping him at home with no higher rank than that of a corporal, she would have chosen the latter without a moment's hesitation. But since the choice was not given her, Clarence's promotion did much to console her for his approaching departure, at least until the day arrived, when she turned blindly away from the platform with an aching dread that the train was bearing him out of her life for ever. That was several months ago, and Second Lieutenant Stimson, he dropped the wibbly when he first enlisted, has been at the front ever since. There's a certain endless road, bordered by splintered stumps, which once were poplars, and pitted in places with deep shell-holes, that he knows only too well, having taken his troop along it many a night to relieve the party in the trenches. Even now, when he comes to the group of ruined cottages, at which he has to leave the road and strike across country into the danger zone, he is unpleasantly conscious of a sinking at his heart at the prospect of another week or so of that infernal existence of shattering noise, flying death-splinters, and sickening sights and smells. There he will have to be constantly on the watch. Meals and sleep can only be snatched at precarious intervals, and seldom without disturbance. If there is anything more nerve-wracking than the scream of shells and the hail of shrapnel, it is the lull that follows, when he waits for the enemy's rush to begin. And yet, the moment he finds himself back in the trench again, he becomes acclimatized, his men speak of him as a cool and resourceful young officer under any difficulties, while on more than one occasion he has done some daring and very useful reconnoitering work that may even earn him mention in dispatches. But at present he is enjoying one of his hard-earned rests, being billeted in a farmhouse well away from the firing line. Here, having no duties or responsibilities to fix all his thoughts on the present, he can allow them to dwell on the future for a while. This desperate and relentless war will come to an end in time, how soon he knows no more than anyone, but that it will end in victory for England and her allies he has no doubt whatever. He is equally sure, though he could not account for this certainty, that, unlike many a better fellow than himself, he will live to see his country at peace once more. But what is he to do then? Even if an opening in the city presented itself, he could never stick an office again after this. On the other hand, even if he gets another step or two, he will find it difficult to live on his pay in a crack cavalry regiment. However, the governor will no doubt give him an allowance that will enable him to stay in the service. The mater can be safely trusted to see to that. 
So, this question being satisfactorily disposed of, his thoughts, as usual on these occasions, drift back to Märchenland, and particularly to Daphne's parting words on the night he left the palace. Would she think, he wonders, that he has done something to justify her belief in him? At least, she might be pleased if she knew that he could not fairly be described any longer as a useless rotter. Only, he tells himself disconsolately, she never will know. England's no country of hers now, and she wouldn't feel enough interest in it even to send the baron across in the store car for a daily paper. If she did, she'd be none the wiser, because he'd be sure to bring the poultry fancier's journal, or the financial news, or something of that sort. And after all, if she had any idea of the ghastly business that has been going on in this old world for the last year, she's too much hard to be happy, even in Märchenland. But now she'll go on being happy for the rest of her life, bless her, and if she gives me a thought now and then, well, it will be a jolly sight more than I deserve. The End Recording by Anna Simon Nijmegen, The Netherlands 2012